You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I think there was a certain excitement that took over because of the number, especially of young people who came in. And, uh, well, there were some reports of what people said they hadn't seen a young person for 10 years and hadn't seen anybody all winter and things like that, that there was a, an enthusiasm that took over. And the Hampshire began to, you know, just sort of, they thought they were doing uh, something. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was a movement that started in New Hampshire with a, with a real odd person. A lot of people wanted Robert Kennedy, who was now a senator from New York and not part of LBJ's administration directly. They wanted him to run and carry the message against the Vietnam War. But instead, Eugene McCarthy, a senator from Minnesota, not well known outside that state, uh, someone who had gone to St. John's University, devout Catholic, had considered becoming a priest before he was a senator and politician. Uh, he was a Cold War hawk, supported the Korean War, government registration of communists, House on american Committee. Uh, not your typical left-wing liberal here. He had complained in the past that welfare programs had no moral or intellectual constituents. He was mixed about LBJ's Great Society programs. Though he's also for certain things like a basic income, back in the 60s, but it couldn't matter less. He took the plunge. This is a poem that Eugene McCarthy writes, I am alone in the land of the aardvarks. I am walking west. All the aardvarks are going east. It's a surprise when this unknown college professor in a Catholic college, runs for Congress in 1948 as part of Truman's surprising win in that year, also wins election to the House of Representatives. Immediately, Speaker Sam Rayburn spots him and says, he's smart, he knows about economics, we're going to put him on the Ways and Means Committee, he knows numbers, he's witty, he's intelligent, he's well-read, and he's one of the few members of Congress that will actually challenge Joseph McCarthy in the early 50s and his practice of red baiting.
Here's what journalist Albert Essel says. Politically, it was a dangerous thing to do because Joe McCarthy was at the height of his powers as the red bait-hunting witch hunter and was destroying careers left and right in the State Department and so forth. And McCarthy was a junior member of the House. In 1952, he decides to debate Joe McCarthy on one of the TV talk shows. So yes, you have McCarthy versus McCarthy here. It's considered quite a risky thing, but he comes off very well, and he gains a lot of stature, and there's a lot of people in Democratic politics that say, ooh, look at this guy. However, his next House election, with Eisenhower running for president now, he just wins by about 30,000 votes, very narrow, and his opponent is a McCarthy supporter who slams Eugene McCarthy for giving cover to communists. You know, for this and other things, Eugene McCarthy gains stature and he runs for the Senate seat in Minnesota in 1958 and gets it. And he's a kind of different Democrat. He's not with, for instance, the budding campaign through the 50s of the Kennedys. Why not? Some say it's jealousy. He gives a speech at the 1960 Democratic Convention nominating Adlai Stevenson for president. So here's a Democrat that's not, he's close with, but not directly a follower of Hubert Humphrey from his state, politically aligned with, but not close with at all, the Kennedys. He's not close with Lyndon Johnson, who would have been another pillar of Democratic politics throughout the 50s. He has his kind of own political force. And during Kennedy's administration and then Johnson's administration, he's the leader of what's called the the liberal bloc, new politics group. In fact, Lyndon Johnson thinks about making McCarthy his running mate in 1964. It's really between McCarthy and Hubert Humphrey. But it's not like McCarthy is 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 always against Johnson or always against the uh, Vietnam War. He's not necessarily a huge fan of the great society. Here's Henry Fairlie of the New Republic, writing about 10 years after the events of 68. Throughout 1968, it was hard to understand why. Because of his opposition to American intervention in Vietnam, Eugene McCarthy was perceived by so many as a liberal and even as a radical. No more upstanding conservative had been a Democratic candidate for the presidential nomination since Adlai Stevenson. In his general attitudes to what he perceived to be the proper business of government, he was not far removed from Calvin Coolidge. When he had said after his victory in the Oregon primary that if he won the election, he would tear down the railings that surround the White House, many of his followers took it as a wonderful signal of how accessible to the people he would make the presidency. That sounds pretty good explanation, right? But of course, what he really meant is that he would make the presidency so unimportant that no one would ever think of going to the White House at all, unless perhaps for poetry readings. McCarthy becomes a poet later. We're going to talk a bit about that. In 1973, he was the moderator of a seminar in the New School in New York on the crisis of the presidency, which was rather like putting a teetotaler in charge of wine tasting. And in an after-dinner speech, he in effect argued for the transformation of the president into a prime minister. A lot changes when Allard Lowenstein, a 38-year-old organizer and a Yale-educated lawyer who had spent the better part of 15 years moving from one university, teaching post or another, and was involved in civil rights and anti-war campaigns, as Theodore White called him, a 
permanent youth leader, wiry yet frail, balding early, getting together anti-party activists, anti-war party activists and students at the local level into a coalition. Let's build the base first, he keeps telling people. A candidate will come along. And actually, though, Lowenstein finds it difficult in 66, 67 to find a candidate who's willing to take on Lyndon Johnson. Johnson's a very powerful president. He's done a lot as president there. He did run with John F. Kennedy. He first approaches Senator Robert Kennedy and Senator George McGovern. Both of them say no at this time. They're not running in 68. So it's then when Lowenstein approached McCarthy. And it takes several conversations. But McCarthy asks, how do you think we'll do in a Wisconsin primary? Lowenstein knew he had found his candidate. I was ecstatic. It was like music, like an organ welling up in my ears. And McCarthy decides to run. At first, he does little to rattle the president's campaign, according to Time magazine. Though he had won election five times to the House and twice to the Senate, he was a cold, aloof character who preferred to hole up in his Senate office, reading poetry, rather than gland hand in the cloakroom. Unsurprisingly, he proved to be an uninspiring candidate. He refused to appear before the multitude of state organizing conferences that were desperate to meet their newly anointed opposition candidate. Disengaged from campaign strategy and unfamiliar with many of the staff members and the local activists whom Lonestein had recruited, he had been dragged into canvassing on his own behalf. During his two-week campaign swing through New Hampshire, he regularly fails to show up at some of his own events, and he declines to make those appearances needed to make you needed to make at factory gates. I'm not really a morning person, he demurred. When Johnny Carson, the host of NBC Tonight Show, asked what kind of president Eugene McCarthy might be, McCarthy offered simply, I think I would be adequate. Yet it almost doesn't matter who the candidate is in this case. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a really oddball candidate. Here's the nation. Pessimism, hesitancy, cynicism, some constitutional conservatism, and a lot of lone wolfism have heretofore muted Senator McCarthy's part in the congressional dissent. He took not the slightest interest, for example, in the move to nullify the Tonkin Gulf resolution. So he votes for it, and he doesn't want to nullify it. He said that it had given the president no power he didn't have before, so why withdraw as an empty gesture? He signed letters to the president urging de-escalation, but he would not join with Senators Morse and Gruning in voting against the appropriation bill. In his book... Chris Matthews gives you the nuance on this. We touched on it in the interview. McCarthy was this very dry, wry, the kind of college professor, almost like Rachel Maddow, that you'd really want. Uh, Smart as hell, didn't seem to need you. Personally, not everyone liked him. Catherine Graham, publisher of the Washington Post, said that McCarthy thinks he's Jesus Christ. This was common. Many people found him to be aloof. Blair Clark, who was his campaign manager, was frustrated by his inability to interact with people and show kindness, to show respect for political leaders whose support he wanted. <laughs> you know, Chris Matthews referenced this in the interview, how he was like the professor. He didn't need you. Yet it, it didn't matter. The purity of his position on Vietnam was enough to inspire large crowds. Here's him speaking. This was the Pied Piper. 
leading the young people over the edge of the riverbank, we assume, and the word was that neither the piper nor the children were ever heard from again. Well, there are two or three things wrong with it, I think. First place, the Pied Piper didn't lead the children over the riverbank. He led the rats over it. And it was only because the town had been so badly managed the politicians were at fault and then didn't honor their commitments after he had done that. So what he did with the children was not to lead them to destruction, but into a cave, and it was not to punish them, but to punish the townspeople whom he felt didn't really deserve them. So that's about where we are. The kind of guy you'd want is your, to be your father figure, and, and, it, and that's the way he was to us. I mean, McCarthy was funny, aloof, charming, as I said, good-looking. He came across as this, where do they find this guy? And he said the war was awful, and I'm going to stop it now. And I'm telling you, when you had your father mad at you because you didn't want to go in the war, hmm. and a lot of us were in that age putting up with that, along comes this guy, your father's age, and he says the war is awful, and I'm going to stop it. And you go, wow. I like this guy. Nonetheless, there's this whole movement that builds. Paul Newman comes out supporting Eugene McCarthy. Harvard, Yale, Amherst, Smith, Mount Olyoke, the other New England colleges that are so close to New Hampshire just flood the state. They come with sleeping bags and ski boots. Bearded students had sacrificed their beards so as not to alarm citizens on their rounds. Blue jeans and sweatshirts were also prescribed. Sympathetic locals housed them in spare bedrooms, in church and synagogue basements, and on living room floors. These college kids are fabulous, the chairman of the Nashua Democratic City Committee crowd. There are so many people who have kids of their own at the same age, and they can't talk to their own kids. It's another generation. These kids knock at the door. They come in politely. They actually want to talk to grown-ups, and people are delighted. And on March 12th, New Hampshireites went to the polls, and Johnson won... This is something that's forgotten sometimes in history. I mean, McCarthy didn't win the New Hampshire primary, but he Johnson won by such a razor-thin margin. McCarthy got 42% of the vote, the Johnson's 47, that it was embarrassing for the president. This is an obscure senator, not even a significant force in the party, and then he's beating Johnson. LBJ leaves the race. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. And Kennedy now decides to come in. Good morning. We are broadcasting this morning the announcement of Democratic Senator Robert F. Kennedy of New York that he will be a candidate for the presidency. The senator is doing so in the face of almost solid opposition from the Democratic Party professionals and the state chairman of the Democratic Party in this country. It's now Kennedy versus McCarthy. I am announcing today my candidacy for the presidency of the United States. I do not run for the presidency merely to oppose any man, but to propose new policies. At least on the anti-war side of the party. Bobby Kennedy was asked, you know, why are you going to run against McCarthy? Maybe you should just endorse McCarthy since he's already running and then wait to run in 1972. And according to Matthew's book, Kennedy's reply was, Kennedy's don't do that. That meant that you had McCarthy and Kennedy in the race. Many of those McCarthy supporters felt that McCarthy was the first and they were sticking with him. I run because I am convinced that this country is on a perilous course and because I have such strong feelings about what must be done and I feel that I'm obliged to do all that I can. I run to seek new policies, policies to end the bloodshed in Vietnam and in our cities, policies to close the gaps that now exist between black and white, between rich and poor, between young and old, in this country and around the rest of the world. I run for the presidency because I want the Democratic Party and the United States of America to stand for hope instead of despair, for reconciliation of men instead of the growing risk of world war. Uh, all I have to, to run on is, is my commitment uh, and what I thought was my integrity as I committed it to people who were prepared to raise this challenge against the Johnson administration at a time when it seemed to me a lot of other politicians were afraid to come down into the playing field. They were, they were willing to stay up on the, on the, on the mountains and light uh, signal fires and bonfires and dance in the light of the moon. But none of them came down. I'll tell you, it was a little lonely in New Hampshire. You were there. 
I walked alone. I, I, they, they weren't even coming in from outside, just throwing a message over the fence, you know. Well, uh, Senator Kennedy says today that he'll come into Wisconsin. Well, I heard him say that, and uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, I, I could have used help in New Hampshire. I, I kind of listened and waited. So Chris Matthews talks about this dynamic between McCarthy and Kennedy appealing to different audiences and, if you will, McCarthy reaching much more of a Bernie Sanders-type audience in 1968. Here's uh, what his book says about it. Bobby had worries on another front, the campus. McCarthy's candidacy had done what Bobby hadn't. By starting early, he had worked a magnetic effect on college students, pulling them to his cause. I remember seeing on television CBS's Roger Mudd confronting Kennedy with that fact as the two sat together in an airport waiting area. How much did all this hurt? Mudd wanted to know. The expression on Bobby's face after hearing the question showed the answer. How could he ever forget his visit to the University of San Francisco, where a student had spat in his face, or when he'd heard another yelling fascist pig, only to realize the epitaph was directed at him? This is Robert Kennedy. Somehow, in the perversity of competitive politics, this rebellious spirit, this born misfit, had allowed him to be positioned as a defender of the status quo. So, we, looking at it in the past, see Kennedy perhaps as an anti-war leader, anti-Vietnam, going to reverse LBJ, and much of that might be true. But there was a left wing of politics seeing things very differently at the time, and that's so important to the discussion. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about that with Chris. Well, the United States to resist the outside, as they described it, to the outside aggressors. So I think this to resume the bombing. Right before Kennedy's death, he participates in the California primary that he's going to win, and this is a debate before that primary. Uh, he has said he takes some responsibility for it. The question is how much responsibility. I was talking more about the process. I said this is one of the things we ought to talk about. It's the process by which decisions were made with reference to this war. Because one of our problems has been to find out you know, who decides and who's responsible and on what kind of evidence would we have this kind of escalation. Can I just and I say that that ad read only one day, and I had not seen said it. that I intervened in the Dominican Republic. Republic. How did they get that? Well, I think what they did, I had... I wasn't even in government at the time. Well, you weren't out very long, but, but, uh, but I, I don't want to call you on that. I, I, but it said it, and then it ran again today. It ran only, we, we stopped it. It, it ran only, it may have run two papers, but I don't think it ran twice. Well, I saw it again well, this morning, and I was in the Dominican Republic. I wasn't even in the government, and I criticized Well... And you can see how it goes. McCarthy was hinting that Robert Kennedy might have been involved in the decision-making that led to Vietnam. He was trying to tag Robert Kennedy with Vietnam. Kennedy's saying, I wasn't in government, which is true about the Lyndon Johnson escalation of the Vietnam War. So McCarthy sought to enlarge the issue. Like What I said was that this was a process that was involved in our going into Cuba involved in our going to the Dominican Republic and also into Vietnam, and that I want to talk about the process. This wasn't a friendly encounter. He's trying to tag him with Vietnam, saying, well, you intervened in Cuba, you intervened in other places, and you, you and your brother started to intervene in Vietnam, so you set the process in place. Kennedy was big with minority voters, eulogized Martin Luther King in a very poignant way that Chris talks about in the interview in Indianapolis. This is a big moment. 
in California, he meets and in, gets the endorsement of labor leader, labor leader Cesar Chavez, endorses Native American rights in Nebraska. He's trying something different. He's trying the new politics, but also keeping close to power brokers and labor leaders. McCarthy has a problem with minorities. When he visits a, a African-American neighborhood in Milwaukee, there's this scene where three black teens are playing basketball and the all-white supporters coming in to the visit just kind of scares them. Um, he said, I will not make racial appeals. And Gloria Steinem talked about a black cab driver who said McCarthy's okay, but he doesn't know what it's all about. Nonetheless, McCarthy wins Oregon. He's in this up until that California campaign. But a moment happens, and this is where Chris really latched onto in his theory about Bobby Kennedy's ability to cut across uh, racial lines. So McCarthy takes a, a swing at Kennedy saying that he was running best among the less intelligent and less educated people in America. Yeah, you can kind of see the aloofness of, of McCarthy there. Kennedy says, you wouldn't vote for someone who didn't care, would you? McCarthy gets Paul Newman, Joan Woodward, Dustin Hoffman, Barbara Streisand, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary cut a single, If You Love Your Country, specifically for McCarthy. Kennedy gets Kirk Douglas, Shirley MacLaine, Truman Capote, Bobby Darin. So each of them has their celebrity army going for them. This is quite a primary. Here's what Theodore White writes on every nightly show in California stormed the Kennedy. Not the elegant, cool John F. Kennedy, as America remembered him, but the exhausted Robert F. Kennedy. His emotion rubbed raw, disturbing the tranquility of the evening with his vision of America and the passionate hope of making it a country without miseries. For at the end, apart from the smooth, romantic TV media presentations in which he was professionally packaged, the Kennedy the TV shows showed was talking from the heart about the war in Vietnam and how it had to be brought to an end, about law and order, but above all, about the sorrowing in millions of underprivileged. He had seen too many children with bellies bloated by hunger in Appalachia, in Mississippi, in the Highlands. He knew of the grape pickers, and he knew that Cesar Chavez was not just a labor leader, but a symbol of the uninformed yearnings of Mexican-Americans who were neither black nor white, and when he spoke of the plight of his American Indians, of adolescents who hung themselves before maturity in a sheer desperate misery, he quivered visibly. And California saw in this last week a man whose intensity disturbed their peace. California might, for instance, see a 40-second snatch of a Robert Kennedy rally in the middle of Watts, and in the emotions he roused, threatened peaceful citizens all the way from Beverly Hills to Pasadena. They could see him one night in an exhausted outburst to a minority group, and then, by the most deft and artistic intercutting, to Washington, where a carnival demonstration showed war-whooping Indians in their feathered headdresses screaming and shrilling. As they made an attempt to assault the Supreme Court of the United States itself, Robert F. Kennedy always made fine copy and gave occasion to great filmic artistry. But there could be no doubt about the nature of the public image. He was the disturber. He meant what he said. If he were elected, he would perform as promised and the country would change. So writes Theodore White. And as referenced there, in California, he has a bit of a secret weapon, though it's not so secret by the time the campaign gets started. And that is 
Cesar Chavez, the head of the Migrant Workers Union. Dolores Huertas, who had uh, worked with Cesar Chavez and on the Robert Kennedy campaign of 68, talks about it. I think this is why people love, I remember when John F. Kennedy was the president, among the folks we work with, the farm workers, they always said, he's the Mexican president. This is John Kennedy. He's the Mexican president. Of course, a lot of them, that was attributed then to Robert. And his relationship with the union had actually gone back a few years. So way back when he was campaigning for JFK in California, and he'd come to California to do fundraisers. Farm workers in Delano did not have a clinic, a 24-hour clinic. So he helped us raise money. You know, Robert Kennedy had several occasions spoken out for Cesar Chavez's group already. There had been a group of migrant workers from California that go over to New York and sit in on a produce market in order to shine a light on what's going on with the produce that you're getting from California. And a lot of them get arrested. They've got no way to get out. And it's Senator Kennedy at the time, his attorney's who helped them get released, and Kennedy makes a speech there with Cesar Chavez. It's it's something that, these are real things, and they remember it. Dolores Huerta continues that, we got the news that McCarthy had won the election in Oregon. The senator announced, we had to get busy for the campaign, so we we're all given our assignments. And I was so happy because I was going to be riding with the senator on the train throughout California. That changed really quick because immediately Caesar said, no, I'm going down to Los Angeles to start setting up the campaign down there. I want you to go through the state of California and start setting up committees. Every place we would call ahead of time, we'd get people together and start telling them why it was important to get involved in the Kennedy campaign. And what we did there in California was, I tell other politicians this, both Caesar and Robert Kennedy, their faith was so strong. When I talk about faith, I'm talking about faith in people. The people will respond. People will get out there. What we did to set up that campaign in Los Angeles, because we only had a few weeks to set up the campaign before the primary, is we would get our precincts, then we'd knock on doors till we found somebody who was willing to be a captain. Then we would leave them all the material, and then we would jump to the next precinct. And so we had all these farm workers that had come down to Los Angeles. They had been sleeping on church floors and going out every single day. And we worked both in East LA and South Central. We worked both areas. But by doing this and getting people just to volunteer, they would say, yeah, I'll take over and I'll make sure that we get people to our precinct and let them know about the election. And we were able to set up everywhere from five to 10 precincts a day. And this is what we were able to accomplish, this short task of running this kind of instant Kennedy campaign in the largest state in the union in a short period of time. It wasn't like you had to convince people to vote for Robert Kennedy. One of Caesar's cousins, Emmanuel Chavez, he had a great thing going. And what he would do is have pictures of Robert. And then when the person agreed to be precinct captain, he would take their picture, you know, take their picture with a picture of Robert Kennedy in their hands. And so they were officially sworn in to be precinct captain for Robert Kennedy. Kennedy wins that. And and, and, and there's so much excitement, you know. Kennedy's now, after this win, he says, you know, I'm going to get Humphrey. I'm going to make him debate me now. I'm going to chase him around the country. I'm going to make him debate me. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. And unfortunately, assassination in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. As one eyewitness, Warren Rogers says... At the double doors to the kitchen, I heard the shots. They sounded like firecrackers. There were eight of them. 
in rapid succession. I thought, what a stupid, tasteless way to celebrate. But in the next split second, I was running through swinging doors. I banged into a wave of people, mostly young girls, screaming, He's shot! He's shot! Get a doctor! And then I crashed into a tight knot of men, about a half dozen or so, all twisted together. At once, I was part of it. When Bobby was killed in Los Angeles, McCarthy said, it was the end for us. He knew the movement was over. He fired his staffers, canceled meetings. Um, Not all his supporters like that. And the anti-war voters started going to George McGovern, who was going to get the nomination the next time around, four years later. McCarthy gets stubborn. And, you know, Humphrey's been bad to him. In the Chicago convention, they try a peace plank. There's no support for it. He just refuses to endorse Humphrey. And um, it's not until Humphrey makes a limited break with President Johnson pledging a gradual withdrawal from Vietnam that Johnson didn't like very much that uh, he starts getting laughter liberal support. But McCarthy keeps refusing to endorse him. Now, this is how he, he it gets to the point when Humphrey loses to Nixon by a razor thin margin. Many people are blaming him. This is what he says in an interview. Right. I did it. I think it was the 8th of October, just about a month before the election that I endorsed him. But I was caught both ways for some people who, who felt, that, as, as you indicate you did, and others who felt that I hadn't endorsed him vigorously enough. In fact, uh, he doesn't do it himself, but many of his followers accused me of having lost the election for him. Now, his own campaign people were not happy with how it turned out. A Blair Clark, his campaign manager, called it a gigantic failure that had a deleterious effect on America by allowing Nixon's election in the end of the day. Jeremy Larner, one of his supporters, was so frustrated that he, a screenwriter, penned a screenplay called The Candidate, 1972, which became a film. Robert Redford, a senator who wins by selling out his principles. Eugene McCarthy retires from the Senate in 1970. He doesn't run for re-election. Instead, he takes a job at a Maryland university, and he becomes a lecturer in politics and a poet. Yes, he writes poetry. Here's his uh, Vietnam poem. We will take our corrugated steel out of the land of thatched huts. We'll take our tanks out of the land of the water buffalo. We'll take our napalm and flamethrowers out of the land that scarcely knows the use of matches. We'll take our helicopters out of the land of colored birds and butterflies. We'll give back your villages and fields, your small and willing women. We will leave you your small joys and smaller troubles. We will trust you to your gods, some blind, some many-handed. From biography of uh, Eugene McCarthy, for some liberals, McCarthy was a heroic figure. Before the campaign was even over, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was declaring, McCarthy has done more than merely made us proud to be Democrats. He has made us glad to be.
I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. And after the election, I believe he expects that he'll be talked about as a candidate for 1972. But a couple of things. His late endorsement of Hubert Humphrey doesn't sit well. A new star in the party's created, although that's not going to work out so well, uh, with Edmund Munsky, who's the vice presidential candidate in 68, who makes a great speech at the convention. And You know, McCarthy steps off in 1970, and it irritated some people. But among the people who still think he can get back in it and be the candidate in 1972, after all, he is the name in terms of peace candidates by the time you're getting to 1972. He's the one solid anti-Vietnam War candidate, and Nixon still has, going into his re-election, the Vietnam War issue to deal with until the very end of that campaign. Uh, In fact, one person who thinks McCarthy would make just a great candidate for the Democratic nomination is Nixon himself. If he runs, Nixon would attract liberal support, reopen all the party-splitting wounds of 68, probably not get the nomination, Nixon figures, in his calculations. And Nixon is a pretty good political figurer. Probably somebody on the more on the right will win. Maybe a a muskie, or center of the party, you know, to be clear. And then maybe McCarthy will again go pouting, endorse late, maybe start an independent campaign, and Nixon gets a good chance of winning. We really like to have McCarthy in the race, Nixon tells his staff in August 1971. And he even asks Henry Kissinger to build up the idea that the only man who has the intellectual capability on the Democratic side is McCarthy. And isn't it a shame that he really doesn't have a chance and all the rest? You know, kind of this like backhanded praise of a Democrat in order to inspire his candidacy in the party. Like, oh, wow, even Kissinger is impressed with him. He even asks uh, H.R. 
Haldeman to contribute to a McCarthy campaign, but nothing comes of that particular one as far as we know. Um, he's going to run several times. He'll, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, is that even Eugene McCarthy himself doesn't think that his 68 campaign led to much. He wrote an unpublished essay that his effort probably had little or no effect on how the Vietnam War was conducted and how it finally ended. The principal result was to ensure that no president would assume that he could carry on a war unaffected by the moral judgment of the people. He concluded that the events of 1968 in the aftermath demonstrated the instability of liberal judgment, the absence of historical sense in the liberal mind, and the lack of continuity and commitment to liberal political action. You know, if, in other words, from his own view, his campaign was something that had to happen but was a bit tragic. We never expected to win. In fact, if we hadn't done as well as we did, we might have had more impact. If instead of beating Johnson and driving him out, we'd gotten 25 or 30 percent, they would have had to say, well, you got your 25 or 30 percent. We can try to accommodate you. That's his hindsight on it. He runs these campaigns in 72 and 76. No one's paying attention to him. And by 1980, he's so disillusioned with Jimmy Carter, the worst president we ever had, he said, that he endorses Ronald Reagan for the presidency. And he also flirts with the Libertarian Party and runs uh, with a consumer party in 1988. Um, the amount of times he ran for president, it just started to become a joke. McCarthy was a maverick of his party. I compared him to Bernie Sanders, and I see that connection. I really do in the 1968, where there's, there's different contours of the left in the Democratic Party. One-to-one -one comparisons are really impossible, and you can't expect everybody to, to fit right into, you know, one other historical example. But he was a maverick who ran against the leading candidate, who refused moderation, who didn't stop running, and who had a large following that were willing to buck trends. Yeah, if you want to understand the story of Robert F. Kennedy's tragic 1968 run for president, you have to uh, understand Eugene McCarthy. Thanks for listening, and really, you know, thanks for your support.